Welcome to Pinebridge Investments Podcast. I'm your host, Aurelia Sachs, Deputy Head of Client Services and me at Pinebridge. Every month, we will discuss different topics at the intersection of markets, geopolitics and investments, sharing Pinebridge's takes on the latest trends, as well as their potential impact on markets and portfolios. Today, I'm speaking with Stephen O, Global Head of Credit and Fixed Income. Stephen, you will discuss the implications of the latest market developments on the credit market and also share your thoughts on the investment opportunities and headwinds facing this large and complex asset class. Stephen, welcome and thank you for your time. Over to you. Thanks, Aurelia. And I'm going to set the stage by speaking first about the broader macro backdrop that will drive the demand and performance of credit risk markets uh, expectations. And first and foremost, there's been a lot of concern about inflation expectations and the fact that perhaps we could see a more sustained level of inflation going forward and its potential negative impact for fixed income asset classes. This debate has been surrounding the issue of is inflation truly temporary in nature, or are we at the beginning of a secular shift toward higher inflation levels and its potential implications? It's our perspective that much of what we are experiencing currently is due to a combination of the rebound of demand re-emerging post-COVID, as well as the supply chain bottlenecks that we are currently facing, which is causing a short-term bump up in inflation. However, the Delta variant is causing the supply chain bottlenecks to linger longer than anticipated. And the net resulting impact of that is that these inflationary pressures from the supply chain issues will be extended further before settling toward a more normalized level. So there are elements of inflation that will remain at elevated levels because some aspects of inflation will stay persistently higher at the reset level and not revert back to where we were pre-COVID. But having said that, we believe that uh, the sustainability of ongoing higher levels of inflation, which is the real concern, is highly unlikely to be taking place. The other component of inflation is the impact of government stimulus uh, as they have also impacted the demand growth in the economy. We believe that much of the government stimulus is very much short-term in nature as much of it is focused on demand and income replacement. And while there will be additional stimulus measures, for example, the infrastructure spending in the U.S., that the impact of that on sustainable inflation will be somewhat limited in nature. However, we do believe that one of the shifts that is taking place in policy is that fiscal stimulus will continue to remain elevated irrespective of which party is in control and that there is a greater willingness from governments around the world to run budget deficits, particularly given the low cost of funding and demand for government bonds in the current environment overall. But longer term, we always ask ourselves, what are the factors that have led to secularly declining inflation levels, and have they changed? And we believe that they have not changed. So when you look back to what has caused inflation to be very low over the past several decades, 
it really relates to the longer-term issue of demographics with an aging population and declining birth rates in the developed markets in particular. We have an excess global savings glut and also the impact of technological advancements. And when we look forward into the next decade, we do not believe that these trends are looking to reverse in any meaningful way. And so, therefore, our expectation is that while we will have a slightly higher level of inflation than what we've experienced in an ultra-low inflationary environment over the past five-plus years, that we will not have sustainably high levels of inflation. So what are the implications for this on yield curves and for government bonds? As we're all aware, there has been significant volatility in government bonds, which are supposed to be, quote-unquote, risk-free safe assets, yet there is a embedded risk associated with those bonds. And we've seen that pronounced this year in particular with the spike up in interest rates earlier this year and then followed by the recent flattening of the yield curve. We believe that earlier this year that the yield curve had overshot to the upside when there was talks of 10-year U.S. government treasuries uh, breaching 2%. And then similarly, we have overshot to the downside this summer when we were testing closer to the about 1.1% levels and talk of going below 1% at one point or other. Uh, So when we think about the yield curve, I think it's good to think about it in terms of time horizon expectations. So what do we expect in the short term? And then what is our expectations in the more intermediate to longer term? Within the short term for the rest of this year, you know, our expectation is that we will remain range bound, but there will be a skew towards slightly higher yields at the back end of the curve but marginally higher and not materially higher, given the Fed's guidance, the potential for an announcement on tapering process, but at the same time, anchoring policy rates at very low levels. And then when we talk, think about the more intermediate or longer term, I think the question that we have to always ask ourselves is what does a normalized yield curve look like at some point in the future? And it starts with what is our expectation for a quote-unquote normalized policy rate? We believe that in the U.S., the Fed will be unable to reach its target as evidence in the dot plots of a mid-2% type of a normalized yield curve uh, level with respect to policy rates. Our expectation is that the Fed will ultimately reach its normalized level in the low to 1% rate. And the resulting impact of that will be negative real policy rates for the foreseeable future. Similarly, the ECB has been mired in negative interest rates for quite some time now. And their expectation or their goal is going to be a bit more modest to at some point get to a zero level and get out of negative interest rates. But we don't believe that the ECB uh, will have rates materially higher than zero uh, for the foreseeable future. So again, the world will be operating in a negative real policy rate environment, uh, both in the U.S. and across Europe and, and Japan, of course. So with the generally positively sloped yield curve, but lower term premiums relative to historical levels, and with the basis of the policy rate setting the short end of the curve, that results in an expectations of the back end of the curve at a fairly low 
one to two percent range for U.S. Treasury rates. So somewhere in the mid one percent to perhaps say about a two percent range, much lower than historical levels, but somewhat higher than what we have been facing during the crisis period of the last 18 months. And furthermore, when there is concern that perhaps we will see U.S. interest rates rising substantially above that, one factor that also needs to be kept in mind is that global rates are very much interconnected. And U.S. Treasuries cannot persistently rise materially above German booms or other key uh, rates around the world on an FX hedge basis, and that will limit uh, and, and create an, an anchoring effect to U.S. Treasury rates despite the stronger growth expectations relative to many other developed natures. So the summary of that is lower for longer view and is also in line with our comment previously that inflation will trend back toward levels that will not be elevated on a sustained basis once we get to a post-COVID environment. So where does this lead in terms of the credit cycle and the economic cycle? And when we think about credit cycles, what we have is what's been stated in my mid-year outlook recently, where the title of that outlook was Early Cycle Fundamentals Meets Late Cycle Valuations. When we look at the fundamental characteristics of the current cycle that we are in, we are very much in the beginning of the next phase of the early cycle, coming out of a short but very sharp recession, coming out of a peak in default rates for this quasi-mini cycle that was COVID-induced. And so we are at the early stages in terms of a very favorable outlook environment, so tailwind supporting uh, corporate earnings. So we are expecting not only from a COVID impact rebound standpoint, but post-COVID into 2022, that earnings will continue to exhibit uh, solid growth characteristics. We are in an environment where upgrade to downgrade ratios have skewed toward upgrades in a strong reversal from where we were just 12 months ago. And we are in an environment with the fault rates plunging toward historical low levels. So all of the conditions that are very much early cycle in nature and supportive of credit spreads ranging tighter for the foreseeable future. But the concern that we face today is typically at this part of the cycle, we have valuations that have room to compress and price appreciation for the next 18 plus months or so. However, when we look at valuation across the specter of credit and risk assets today, we are very much exhibiting late cycle valuations with minimal price appreciation potential and levels that are tight end of historical ranges. And so the resulting impact of that is rather than opportunities for price appreciation, that for the most part, upside return is somewhere around coupon yields and how do we manage to extract those coupon yields in a low-yield environment. I think one factor, though, that is significant that has to be taken into account is that historical risk premium for all assets need to be readjusted for the world that we face for the next five to 10 years and what I mean by that is we are in a market environment 
that will be characterized by my prior comments that we will operate in a very supportive negative real policy rate environment. And more importantly, central banks and the Fed in particular have exhibited their desire to forcefully jump into financial markets at the first tenth of an exogenous shock or a recessionary environment, and in essence, truncate and cut off the left tail risks. So when you combine these factors together, one needs to reset historical risk premium for risk assets, and that's across the board, whether it's fixed income or in the equities environment, to adjust for this new world environment that we will be facing and expected to face uh, for the foreseeable future. Therefore, despite the tight valuation, our conclusion is that valuations are not overvalued, but within the range of fair value when you make an adjustment for the risk premium that is necessary in the current market environment overall. So where does this lead to in terms of our outlook in the opportunity of various credit asset classes? You know, first and foremost, we would state that given our view that we are very much in early cycle fundamentals, in terms of what type of risk premium and factors that one is seeking to take or should take on a risk-adjusted basis, and I would note that you're not going to get excess yields without taking some level of risk exposure. It's just a matter of where is the better value in risk exposure. We believe that credit risk exposure, as supported by early cycle fundamentals, results in taking additional credit risk relative to government bond risk, and in particular, in an environment that I characterized earlier, leverage finance credit in the form of bank loans, high-yield bonds, as well as adding the incremental added complexity premium of CLOs really results in an environment of excess yield return opportunities supported by, again, characteristics of lower default rates and improving corporate earnings trends overall. Another risk premium that we believe has been taken increasingly by investors but is supported in certain segments is the arena of illiquidity premiums and small company premiums as characterized by private credit or private debt. However, I think one needs to be careful in that there has been so much capital put forth in this space that the value opportunity is very much focused on the traditional small to medium enterprises, the you know, 5 to 15 to 30 million of EBITDA companies, and not in a large part of the private markets, which has very much gone up market with all of that excess capital chasing what has historically been the lower end of the broadly syndicated market. So we believe that there is a value in private credit, but that value is principally within the arena of the smaller mid-market companies and capturing that small company premium as well as that illiquidity premium. And then there is, of course, in an environment with improving global expectations, but at the same time, some challenges there are some valuation opportunities in seeking geographic premium on a targeted basis in the area of emerging markets. Within the emerging market arena, it is a very large space and it is not one market. One needs to be much more targeted in approach. We are more constructive generally on the corporate credit arena of emerging markets as supported by the broader early cycle fundamentals. 
there is some pockets of volatility right now with some headline corporate credits, particularly with respect to a few issuers in Asia. But we believe that those are very much idiosyncratic in nature. And to the extent that that creates spread widening that are more broad-based, it creates more of an opportunity set to enter investing in those components overall. And then finally, because credit markets have been shifting much more quickly, one of the areas that we think that investors should look to take advantage of is a more flexible approach. So rather than making discrete allocations to individual segments, to seek to invest in a bit more multi-asset and opportunistic approach to incrementally capture the relative values, not only across asset class and geographies, but also specific security selection opportunities that may emerge uh, within individual asset classes overall. And, And ultimately, in a world where we are expected to have low returns, it's about the capturing opportunities for the limited alpha that does exist and within the asset classes that offer those alpha opportunity sets. So overall, with 2222, not too far around the corner, you know, we do face a very challenging environment of lower returns, but also with respect to many of the credit risk arenas, a lower risk environment. And as with all market environments, it's really about How do you analyze? How do you identify risk? How do you price that risk? And and how do you manage that risk on a consistent basis to try to produce a favorable outcome for your investment portfolio? Thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for listening. And we hope you will join us for future episodes of our podcast series. For more economic and investing insights, please visit our website, timebridge.com. Thank you.